0: On November 9, 2022, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs partnered with the Korea Economic Institute to address the Forum Policy Forum audience on the topic of the relationship between the United States and the Republic of Korea. The panel included Dr. Work and Troy Stangerone from the Korea Economic Institute and Hannah Cha, the State Department Unit Chief for North Korea. The panel, moderated by Karina Van Vliet, touched on Ohio's links to South Korea, the bilateral relationship with the United States, the daily lives of South Koreans living in the shadow of North Korea, and what might motivate the DPRK to come to the negotiating table on the nuclear issue. Please enjoy the forum.
1: So good, good evening, everyone. And as you can tell, there, um, you know, there's some technical uh, microphoning we'll be doing, so bear with us as we gracefully uh, hand these over in transition. Uh, But first off, I'd like to point out that our event this evening, it is part of CCWA's Foreign Policy Forum, but it is also a three-way partnership that we're very fortunate to be engaged uh, in with the World Affairs Councils of America and the Korea Economic Institute, and it's the Engage Korea 2022 program, which is bringing us this amazing uh, delegation from uh, DC, mostly to raise awareness about the importance of our strategic relationship with South Korea, uh, which we will be exploring in depth uh, with our panel this evening. Uh, and you have their full bios in the program, so won't uh, go in, you know won't belabor it. But just to briefly introduce them before we start the conversation, um, in the middle here we have Hannah Chao who serves as the DPRK Unit Chief in the Office of Korea Mongolia Affairs at the US State Department. Uh, Before this assignment, she was a political officer at the US Embassy Seoul, overseeing the DPRK portfolio there as well. Uh, For those of you in the know, and I'm sure you all are, DPRK is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, AKA North Korea. Uh, And then before that, she was on a one-year diplomatic exchange at the Republic of Korea's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in their Bureau of Public Diplomacy. And we're especially pleased to have her on the panel because she is a Cleveland native and a graduate of Case Western Reserve University. So Hannah, welcome home. Thank you. Uh, Next to me is Troy Stangaron, who is senior director and fellow at the Korea Economic Institute, uh, otherwise known as KEI by its acronyms. He oversees KEI's trade and economic related initiatives, as well as the Institute's relations with Capitol Hill and the trade community in DC. Uh, And fun fact, among his many responsibilities, he oversees KEI's blog, which is called The Peninsula. So very, very, very germane to our title this evening. Uh, And finally, uh, Dr. Clint Wood is director of academic affairs at the, also at KEI. Before joining the Institute, uh, he served as a fellow in the Henry Stinson Center's this 39 North program, uh, which as the name suggests, uh, he focused there on issues related to the U.S. ROK Alliance transformation. He led congressional engagement on peace and security matters on the Korean Peninsula and moderated a military working group centered on North Korea's evolving checkerboard threat. So, I would love for you to join me in welcoming our uh, panel to Cleveland this evening. Thank you. we're thrilled to have all of you. And what I thought we would do to start um, the conversation is, is kind of have each of you share with us how you see the strategic importance of the U.S.-South Korea relation. How, why is this special for you from your uh, professional perspectives, and, and how did you come to focus on Korea's part of your careers? Um, so, we'll start.
0: Sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for the lovely introduction. It's great to be back in Cleveland. Um, I think for me, I'm Korean American, my family, I was born and raised in the Cleveland area and it's been really interesting. I was telling some of the folks here earlier that I never imagined coming back to Cleveland to talk about my life in the Foreign Service or as a U.S. diplomat, but it's been quite an honor Um, and it's been really interesting to go through, currently I'm based out of Washington as the DPRK unit chief, but most recently I served overseas at our embassy in Seoul. And there, I also covered North Korea issues. Um, As a Korean-American, it's really interesting to contrast the Korea that I'm told through my grandparents' and my parents' lenses of what it meant to leave Korea and to immigrate to the US. My mom's right there, for anybody who's interested. Hi, mom. (laughs) Um, And to imagine the world that they left, and then to go back as a Korean-American serving at the embassy there. But what's really interesting is that when we think of the US Rock Alliance, we often think of a security alliance, like we think of the military, we think of the DMZ, we think of North Korea just across the border, but in my time serving there, um, I was there for four years, I saw that the U.S. Rock Alliance is so much more than just North Korea. We're talking about an economic relationship. We're talking about global issues like COVID-19 and climate change that we're working with the Koreans together on. We're talking about the Koreans being a part of like a regional partner that can really deliver and they care about the Indo-Pacific in ways that I don't think when we created our alliance, you know, decades ago, that these were the things that we were considering when we talked about the Republic of Korea. Um, so for me, it's been really remarkable to see that transition and to be honest, to kind of reflect on my family's own history and contrasting it to kind of where we started, what brought me here, and then finally kind of the the new chapter that the U.S. Rock Alliance is really demonstrating to the world.
2: Well, it's great to be here. Um, I'm from uh, originally Tennessee, so uh, I'm not a native like Hannah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think I want to build on what Hannah said, with special relationship, because we always focus on North Korea. You know, Hannah was telling us that she was woken up this morning at one when uh, the North Koreans tested another missile. And you know, that's what you see in the press. That's what you hear about all the time is North Korea, North Korea nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles. But, you know, this is a country that went from basically being devastated after the Korean war to now being the world's 10th largest economy. And within that same time, I was at an event on Monday with Ambassador Mark Clipper. He was talking about how we don't appreciate that when Ebola broke out in Africa about five or six years ago, Korea was one of the main partners there working with us and working with our African partners to try and contain this outbreak. Korea is a key partner for us on an economic level. I assume everyone here has a cell phone. Whether you have a Samsung, which is a Korean phone, whether you have an iPhone, it probably has a South Korean semiconductor in it because Apple uses basically either Samsung or SK Hynix memory chips for most of their phones. Uh, so you're likely taking and utilizing a Korean product. And you know when we talk about the relationship going forward, we focus on national security a lot. But that national security is often underpinned by strong economic and technological relationship. And South Korea is perhaps one of the most important partners for that because of their role in the semiconductor industry, because of their role in electronics, because of their role in things like batteries, which we now have you know an LG battery factory that's going to be uh, opening up or may have opened up already here in Cleveland. So it's these kinds of things that we don't talk about, but that really kind of builds the relationship that I think is what makes the relationship special. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, CCWA, first of all, for for
3: hosting this event, and Ambassador Hodges for taking us down to the University of Akron earlier today. Um, uh, I I wasn't going to say this originally, but I'm I'm sort of queuing off my colleagues here. My my original interest in Korea stemmed from my Korean-American friends at Boston College who told me about uh, their own experience growing up as Korean-American, but also their parents' experience immigrating to the U.S., and that interested me. Uh, and it cued me into investigating the U.S.-Korea relationship a bit more in depth on my own, which led me years later, um, after I really didn't like what I was doing as a commodities trader in Chicago, to go to South Korea to teach English as a, as a foreign language, um, with an airy notion that I might pursue a graduate degree, uh, that was over God, 12 years ago now, um, and I since went on to get a master's and a PhD focused on U.S.-Korea relations. and. Um, you know, I, I certainly agree with and echo what my colleagues have said, but what I'm really struck by in the relationship, and, and this is the case with all history, all history is a story of continuity and change. But I think the Korean Peninsula and the U.S. South Korea relationship is like the quintessential example of this dynamic of continuity and change. Um, and and my, my research specifically, or one element of my research, looks at the U.S. military presence on the Korean Peninsula. Um, from its origins to the present day. And I'm very interested in in moments in time where US presidents, for various reasons, have tried to have reduced and realigned US forces or attempted to withdraw them in the case of Jimmy Carter, Um, and how in each of these cases, the same sort of fundamental questions about the relationship arise. And for the US, it's never just about Korea. The US presence on the Korean Peninsula has never been just about Korea. It's about the region, it's about Japan, it's about its own wider interests, uh, and these have great fungibility across strategic contexts. They're, they're very static. For South Korea, of course, the US presence has been there for nearly the entirety of its existence, except for one year, which was June of 1949 to the outbreak of the Korean War. So when there wasn't a US combat presence there, South Korea was nearly swallowed whole by North Korean Blitzkrieg. So that cuts deep grooves in sort of the psychologies around the relationship. Um, I could go on to say more, but the last thing I'll say is I'm very interested in the the sort of dynamic between the two alliance partners, the sort of dance between them where, of course, because of South Korea's remarkable transformation, the US encourages and embraces, even sort of pressures it to do more and take on a more robust role, but that other times tries to kind of restrain it from doing so and try to sort of strongly influence its its, uh, policy. And on the South Korean side, There's a strenuous effort, again based on its remarkable transformation, to take a more robust role, to carve out greater autonomy, both within the relationship and outside of it, but also a distinct fear of American abandonment and a desire to keep the U.S. close. And these things are rooted in this earlier history, despite these remarkable transformations. So I'm sure we can talk about some of this in specific economic and political realms, well beyond the military.
1: Great. Um, I think that's a wonderful way to, to frame the overall uh, discussion about our strategic alliance with with Korea, and starting with the fact that this is about U.S. ROK cooperation uh, that encompasses the trade and the business and the investment elements. But of course, the question we are all wondering is: Yes, there's there's that there's the presence of North Korea, and over decades, uh, successive U.S. administrations have attempted to deal with the the north korean regime um and it continues to pose such an incredible threat to stability in the peninsula but just as you as you alluded to more broadly in the region uh, and none of our american attempts have succeeded and so i think the question million dollars if you answer it is why
0: i think this question's for me <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
0: so Having only covered this account, maybe not only, both from Washington as the DPRK unit chief, but also from Seoul as the political officer that covered North Korea, one of my many bosses, special representative um, who covers North Korea, Sam Kim, I often ask him, Ambassador Kim, like, you've covered this issue for decades. How do we make this better? Why is this the way that it is? And he really has covered every major agreement in some capacity, whether it's the group framework, or the leap day agreement, things we've done with North Korea like we've he's really been invested in a lot of these different um, landmark moments with North Korea and including as recently as the Hanoi and Singapore summits. We can be criticized and that's okay, but ultimately U.S. policy has not changed. Um, I think we've seen progress, we've also seen setbacks, we've had we've been optimistic at various times, we've been frustrated but we've always been hopeful and we've been very clear that we remain open to dialogue with the the North Koreans. Um, We want to see, have conversation. We want to be engaged and have sustained diplomacy with Pyongyang, but an unwillingness for North Korea to come to the table is just consistently what we've seen. And in the intervening years, we've also seen over a hundred ballistic missile tests I mean, this year alone in 2022, we've, we've seen 61 ballistic missile tests from North Korea. Um, they're the only country that's done nuclear weapons testing. Um, and they have openly said and most analysts agree that a seventh nuclear test is just on the horizon. So these kinds of things, I think, at the end of the day, show an unwillingness for them to engage. And despite especially within the Biden-Harris administration, we've been very clear since our DPRK policy review came out last spring that we want to engage and that we're open to meeting without preconditions.
3: Yeah, so just even more broadly. Um, why have these efforts failed? Um, there is such profound mistrust between the US and North Korea. Um, and of course, it's not the only diet relationship in this mix. There are other stakeholders involved, notably South Korea, and so the ability to get all stakeholders involved—not just among those three, but also Japan, China, Russia—when I'm talking about the six-party talks—for any sustained or uh, sustainable outcome, where we move towards a different type of relationship, ultimately requires the involvement and buy-in of a lot of different parties with different interests. So to get alignment—not perfect alignment, just like halfway decent alignment among them—for a long enough period of time, you know, crossing electoral shifts in these different countries among other factors, is is very difficult. Um, I would also say that um, the unique and dastardly nature of the North Korean regime makes it exceedingly difficult to build trust with because you feel like you have an agreement and then it can fall apart for reasons that are apparent or not so apparent. Um, I will also just finally add that, you know, Hannah alluded to this, uh, there have been agreements, uh, you know, what, what, what were decent frameworks over time. The agreed framework in the 90s was probably the most robust of them because at least it did freeze their program for a time. I think there is a degree of uh, a sort of exhaustion with the, the cyclical nature of this process now, where there's already this mistrust, but there's now sort of like a sort of a to use like an academic term sort of reified hardening of um of attitudes of just like are we going to do this again what are we going to get out of this again and at the end of the day north korea is not going to give up it this is my personal opinion but they've said this repeatedly openly and sometimes we can take them at face value they're not going to give up their nuclear weapons An official u.s policy since the late 80s has been that you have to give up your nuclear weapons so what we say they have to do and what they're going to do or not going to do are mutually inconsistent, and that ain't going to change.
2: So I would just add a couple of quick things. One, um, it's not just U.S. policy, but I mean, the U.N. Security Council resolutions are very clear that North Korea is up nuclear weapons. So it's not just the United States; it's you know the Chinese, the Russians, even if they're not always as helpful as we'd like them to be, who have said that North Korea has up its nuclear weapons. But you know, your question: Why have we not gotten a deal? For any deal in any walk of life, there has to be some common ground that both sides are trying to achieve. And so at the end of the day, you know, I think I agree with Clint, the North Koreans are unlikely to develop their weapons. You know, they view them as, you know, at a minimum, the one thing which protects them from being attacked. And it's not just a question of the United States. If you look at the history of the region, because I think too, if you gave them true serum, they probably say we know the Americans are not going to attack us. What it is is they live in a region to where they face a second Korean state that is much more prosperous than them, a Japan who has a history on the peninsula that is questionable, and the Chinese government that has invaded, or a China that has invaded them you know, hundreds of times. So there's a lot of distrust within the region, and there's a lot of reasons for, especially a regime that is very enclosed to be very skeptical of the outside world. And so then when you look at where you would go in talks, You know, what is the common ground that we could try to reach with them to where there would be some sort of exchange to where they would give up or minimize their nuclear weapons? And at the end of the day, there just hasn't really been anything there because, you know, if you look at, for example, you know, Iran, you know, whether you think the Iran nuclear deal is a good idea or a bad idea, Iran has its own regional ambitions. There is a desire to take and grow its own economy, you know, there is this sort of, you know. Back and forth, even if it was very minimal between the population and the government and you don't have these kind of dynamics at play. The North Korean regime isn't concerned about growing the economy. They're concerned about making sure there's enough wealth to go around to keep the elites happy. If Everyone else is unhappy. That's an acceptable solution. And so we talk a lot about, well, we'll offer you economic sanctions. We'll take the um, you know, sanctions off, you know, President Trump, I think while well, it may not have been the right answer, at least try to be creative by saying, you know, we'll make you a tourist destination and everything. And so you know, even if that was you know, an ill-conceived idea, at the end of the day, they're not really interested in that. They don't want a bunch of foreigners coming in. They don't want to become a world, one of the world's great economies. And so the incentives we have just aren't really what they're interested in. And I think you know, at the end of the day, a colleague of mine wants to put it best, maybe we don't have anything they want. And I think that's you know, the real challenge.
1: Um, I, I think that's, hopefully, is this working better? Great. And I think that's sort of um, describing the current moment, right, this sense of being at an impasse, this sense of, oh, here we go again, oh, you know, more more, more missile tests. And so, and so looking, looking at the situation, um, you know, the, the North Koreans are probably not going to give up uh, their nuclear program, and yet the international community has made it clear that that's, that that's the outcome that is being sought and it struck me in the news coverage of, of the recent barrage of activity that has happened on the peninsula in the past few months. At some point, CNN raised the question of, well, shouldn't we just accept the fact that North Korea is a nuclear state? And I guess the question I have is, should we do that? Does that make sense? How do we square it with policy? What are, what are your thoughts on that?
3: And I'm not surprised that Hannah didn't <laughs> want to answer that. Um, yeah, so they are, they are a nuclear weapon state, um, whether we want to accept it or not. Um, so it's, it's, the, it's a fact, um, obviously. Um, but the question is, OK, well, what does that mean in terms of how we accept that officially? Um, I, I, w- I just will quickly add, yes, you're right. It is not just US policy that they need to denuclearize. It's alliance policy. It's Japan's policy. It's NATO's policy. It's the international community. Um, so the question is how does this this recognition that they are in fact a nuclear weapon state affect how we approach engagement if and when that comes about? I'll say two things, just observations. One, um, are people familiar with the concept of the overton window? Essentially, like the spectrum of of accepted discourse on any given issue. That if you if you present ideas that are outside the overton window, it's sort of laughable, it's not taken seriously. But if you if you're within the window, we can talk about it I, and this is just my personal observation I do think that the the Overton window on North Korea's nuclear program and how to engage them has expanded to uh, a greater awareness I don't want to say acceptance but like essentially behind closed doors acceptance of the fact that they have nukes. they're like they're not going to give them up how, how are we going to change how we approach them and how we structure negotiations and I think you know to the Biden Harris administration's credit and from uh, the current South Korean administration, the Yoon Suk administration's credit there, the plans they put forward publicly, um, though denuclearization, of course, is still the ultimate goal, they do frame it as the ultimate goal. It's it's backloaded. It's there's a they talk about a calibrated and practical approach on the U.S. side and the South Korean side, sort of audacious plan, but essentially that involves phased steps um, where sanctions have to stay in place until you denuclearize but some of the steps they they talk about taking in the interim would require some loosening of sanctions or wavering you know that sanction waivers things that would loosen the current structure Um, i I think this is an awareness of hey we we have to find a different way to approach this the catch of course is that kim jong-un and the north korean regime have done nothing but but they sort of spit in the face of this offer. They're not taking it up. They're saying no discussion about denuclearization is ever going to occur. And again, we're not giving the new step. So until they come to the table and further explain in detail what it is they want, um, I, I don't know where we're going to get. I, I would like to see the American side, and maybe this is happening and Hannah will say one way <laughs> or the other, go and say exactly what they want and give a more like clear incentive for North Korea to come back. Um, but again, that's my, not a fly on the wall out of the rooms, you know, so I don't know what you're saying. But I would like to see something more concrete to entice them to come back, because I don't think they have a reason to right now. Uh,
1: so perhaps going a little deeper on that, how specifically do the United States and ROK bilaterally work together to engage uh, on North Korea? And as you mentioned, there's uh, a new administration of President Yoon, has been since May, there were elections. Has that in any way altered how the United States cooperates directly with our uh, ROK partners?
0: From the policy perspective i think every level from the president down to working action level officers like myself um, we engage with the south koreans very regularly you'll see especially under the biden and Paris administration um, the summits that have happened between our presidents um, both of the union administration as well as the previous moon administration very similar but, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but these types of engagements i think really reflect how much we prioritize Um, our bilateral relationship with the Republic of Korea, not just on North Korea, though. I think we tend to focus, again, a lot on this North Korea security-related dynamic with our partners, not just with Korea, but also with Japan. But frankly, our relationship is so much more robust than just North Korea. And I think, um, just to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit, our economic relationship, the fact that there are regional partners on lots of other global issues, Um, I think it really reflects just how much the relationship with South Korea has evolved in recent
2: decades. So I'll maybe take this next step and not necessarily talk about like North Korea, but the broader cooperation. There's a deep level of cooperation and it's gone through both progressive administration in South Korea, so the Moon administration just before the current conservative Union administration. And it's changed. If you go back and you look at our joint statements from presidential meetings and occasionally put out what we call a joint vision statement, they used to be sort of very kind of sparse, sense they'd say, we're gonna cooperate on climate change, we're gonna cooperate on terrorism, but it wouldn't really say what that means. And to be honest, I've at times had people from both the US government and the South Korean government come to me and say, You know we agreed to cooperate on this thing but we don't really know how we go about doing that can you put something together to try and help us figure out how to do this we've now got to the point to where if you look at the two most recent statements between the two governments there's very explicit things like we're going to do these things on climate change south korea is committing to taking reducing its emissions more we're going to cooperate on like hydrogen storage technology um, you know on you know supply chains we're going to work together to try and coordinate you know our supply chains shortages and everything to see where there are different gaps in the system. And if you look at those two statements, the first one was done with the progressive moon administration of power, the second one was done by a conservative administration. There's some differences between the two, but they're largely the same issues and the same type of progress and so across the political spectrum you see this desire to want both deepen cooperation but also to move beyond sort of just an idealized version of cooperation but to really start getting into the nuts and bolts of how we go about doing this and what we should be doing together because i think at the end of the day the most important thing is i would rather there only be one issue in the statement if we know exactly what we're going to do and we actually make progress on it rather than have a bunch of issues that we don't make progress on it we're moving more towards that idea of how can we actually make progress on these issues We well
3: said. Uh, across the board, I agree. They're, we were talking about this at the airport yesterday. The joint statements—they've—they've they've gotten much longer. They're like short novels now compared to what they used to be. But if you go back to 2009, there was the joint vision statement between the two allies of sort of marking this the so-called broadening and deepening of the alliance. But if you read it at the time, it was it was more aspirational than it was reflective of what was actually happening. It was sort of setting the vision again. Um, We've seen in successive sort of similar vision statements, 15, and then again more recently in twenty twenty one and this year, they're longer, but it's because there's more deep, there's more meat on the bone of what were aspirational things before. It's it's actually happening now, much more concretely. It's in areas that that have been mentioned um, and are in large part a reflection of South Korea's incredible strength in these areas. Some things they do better than the U.S. does. Quite a few things, really. Um, and a recognition on the, on the, the US side that, um, again, this is far more than a military alliance. Um, I do have some problems when, they, when they, they refer to it as a global comprehensive strategic alliance. Just don't call it an alliance. Alliance is a military alliance. It sort of it muddles the meaning of the term. I'm quibbling right now, so I'll stop because it's, it's more than ex- exactly the point, it's more than a military alliance.
1: Actually, I would love for you to quibble more, uh, because I think <laughs> it would be great to understand some of the details of, in addition to the security and, and military alliance, what are these other key areas of cooperation between the United States uh, and the Republic of Korea, Yeah. including on the on the economic front, uh, and then also sort of on these more global challenges that we, we mentioned in the opening.
3: Yeah, I'll mention one or two, and then, then Troy, sure. I think would definitely weigh in, 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 in as well. Um, you know, just most immediately we're still in this pandemic coming out of it i mean they've they're, they're uh, the, the chorus um, FTA. no not the chorus. fd the chorus vaccine working group i forget no. the name of it but so south korea has committed to become a global vaccine hub um, and this involves essentially every stage of the design manufacturing distribution packaging i'm, I'm sorry i'm missing out the order of vaccines, right, and then training training officials from low and middle income countries in South Korea, and they go back to their countries to to take this knowledge and and improve their public health systems. They're doing this uh, very concertedly, um, and the U.S. recognizes this, and they realize that there are certain advantages in the nature of public-private partnerships in the South Korean system that um, they're working with, and and U.S. um, uh, pharma companies are working with them as well. To essentially bolster this effort by joining their efforts. Um, One thing I'll say is is there's there's shared we're shared democracies. This wasn't always the case. South Korea was a dictatorship until 1987. Um, It's democratized. This is this strengthens the relationship, but it also makes it more complex because now a wider cacophony of voices in South Korea has to be incorporated into their policy. So this makes Hannah's job and like alliance management much more difficult, um, but more specifics.
0: I'll leave the econ things to Troy, but I do think it's important to recognize that bilaterally and trilaterally with Japan, whether it comes to our economic relationship, how we approach North Korea, our our engagement on with the Pacific Islands, um, our cooperation with NATO, support for Ukraine, these issues that once maybe we never considered ROC as partners with us. They're, they definitely are. They've really stepped up and um, become a global leader, both regionally and globally, on a lot of the shared um, concerns that the United States has, as well. But I'll leave the econ things for Troy, since that's his expertise. So, uh,
2: I will just say one little thing, and Clint may want to add on to this in a minute. You know, One of the things in the war in Ukraine that Korea is doing is they have a relatively robust arms industry. And so Poland is one example. There's a couple other European countries. They are in the process of selling military equipment to Poland, which will then allow Poland to take and give their stocks to Ukraine. So one of the ways they're sort of under the radar helping, you know, this effort is by taking and being able to resupply countries who are giving up some of their own military stocks. But so if we look at the economic relationship, which, you know, in some sense covers everything from climate change to traditional trade issues and the health kinds of things that Clinton was talking about, we started up basically a senior dialogue on energy and the environment, so climate change. So how do we take and cooperate? How are we doing on our energy policies? We are trying to take, and this would include more than Korea, start up what's called CHIPS4, which would bring together Taiwan, South Korea, the United States, and Japan, four of the major semiconductor uh, countries in the world to coordinate on things about like employment, supply chain issues, technology and export controls. Um, my one quibble with this is we really need to bring the Europeans into this because a lot of the key uh, semiconductor equipment is actually made in Europe. And so to make all this kind of work, you really need the Europeans involved. So I would say a CHIPS 5 would probably be my preference. Um, but you know, this is challenging because China is trying to develop its own industry. And so there's this sort of pushback and concerns in all of our partner countries about, well, how far do we really want to go? Because we don't want to you know, push Beijing too far either. But, you know, we're trying to work on these quiches and semiconductors. We now have a working group on supply chain issues to try and work through the challenges that we've all faced over the last two years or so from the pandemic. So you have those kinds of things. But if you take it on a more sort of very specific level, You know, I mentioned the LG battery factory here in Ohio. Right now, there's a transition going on and it's taking place globally to move towards electric vehicles. The Chinese market is the largest market for electric vehicles. Basically, all the Chinese manufacturers are building electric vehicles. In some some ways, China is sort of leading edge of this technology. Uh, The Europeans are moving this way. A lot of the countries are going to be phasing out internal combustion engines. So this is the way the world is heading, and you know Ford and GM have both committed to doing this. But the transition in the United States is going to be largely dependent on South Korean battery companies. Right now, about 12 of the 14 high capacity battery factories that are going to be built in the United States between now and 2025 are either South Korean battery companies or they are South Korean companies with joint U.S. ventures. So you have things like in my home state between Ford and, and I think it's SK, if I remember, Um, to build a major battery complex and EV facility outside of Tennessee. You have more of this going on in Georgia and other states. And so, Korea is a key partner in this. So, you know, this transition is going to be a key part of it. You know, I mentioned Chips 4, but it's not just a question of Chips 4. If you think about high technology, if you look at semiconductors, the chips that are 10 nanometers or less in size. So these are the most advanced chips with the smallest components and everything on it. 98% of those are produced in Taiwan by TSMC. The other 8% are produced by Samsung in South Korea. So in terms of maintaining US access to the most advanced chips in the world, South Korea is a key partner, especially given our concerns about the geopolitical situation around Taiwan. So you have all of these areas and others to where you know we're working together on these economic issues, these technology issues, these supply chain issues, these healthcare issues, and where before it might have been sort of low-level discussions, we're now elevating it up to like you know the essentially the deputy secretary levels or so, and so that's really kind of how the relationship is changing.
1: Um. This will be my last question, and hopefully you all have thought of many, many things you want to ask uh, our panel. Uh, but I think, as you've all repeated, this is not just about our OK in the United States. This is about a very intractable uh, security situation on the peninsula that is in a geopolitically very um, very sensitive region for the United States. And I think we're very used uh, in our audience here to talk about U.S. interests in the region, how Korea fits in with China and with Japan. Uh, So, if you'd like to expand on that, but what I'd really love to hear from all of you is how does South Korea view its specific geopolitical role in this very complex region?
3: What's that? (laughs) I'll take a shot, yeah. (laughs) What's the line? It's complicated. (laughs) yeah, <laughs> still Hannah's line. Um, you know, w- w- when we look at obviously the U.S.-China relationship and the direction it's going, this is sort of the order of the day. South Korea, as deep as its relationship is with the U.S., um, and, and in, other way, in some ways it's deepening. You know, twenty-five percent of its trade is both outward and inwards with is with China. Um, it's second and third largest trade partners of the U.S. and Japan, and combined, it doesn't make up as much as its trade with China. Um, so, even if it does want to reduce that dependence, and it does, it's a very tricky, difficult thing to do. So, um, there's that, and they have been subjected to South Korea has Chinese economic coercion um, in 2016 as the result of. A US missile defense battery deployment to the Korean Peninsula that the alliance agreed on together. As a result of that, China coerced South Korea economically to the tune of $7.58 billion, maybe more than that, by essentially closing all Latte department stores in China, banning all K-pop concerts in China, boycotting all South Korean's beauty products, which is a huge industry. Um, and my Chinese friends love Korean beauty products, so like this is, you know, this is a money making thing. Um, so they learn from that and attitudes towards China have gotten much more negative in South Korea, particularly among younger people. Um, and part of their new Southern policy under the previous Moon administration was predicated in large part on, on trying to diversify its relationships beyond China, throughout Southeast Asia with ASEAN countries and with India. Um, of course, though, the Korean Peninsula remains militarized and divided, and China is essential to dealing with North Korea, whether it's in a crisis or whether it's towards something more substantial. So, it's the tyranny of geography and history. Um, I love my Korean brothers and sisters, and sometimes I get frustrated, I think you should be more confident. You should. You, should, you know, should be more robust, more constant with your capabilities. But then I think, oh, wait a second. I understand these truculent realities with which they deal. Anyways, I, you know, pass the mic.
0: <laughs> oh, oh,
2: Go ahead. Uh, I think, so I think you asked, how do they view the role? I mean, it's yes. hard to say how anyone else views the role. But what I can say is sort of in my conversations, what has come across and what other governments have told me that when they want to engage on issues they've said. And so I think there's, to keep in context, you know, Clint is right. The tyranny of geography weighs on this because there is a sense amongst, you know, South Koreans I've talked to and others in governments who try to engage South Korea that they can't be a full partner globally or regionally until North Korea is resolved, that, you know, this is something that pulls on their weight. Now, what I would like South Koreans to know, and I've told some on occasion and everything, which is what other governments told me is that other governments don't view them that way. They don't view them as sort of a limited partner because of North Korea. They view them as the world's 10th largest economy, a major, you know, military power, a major economic and technological hub. And so there's this desire for Korea to do more. And I think there's a desire on the Korean side to do more, but it's finding the way to do this. Some of this is structural. I've talked with Korean officials before. Uh, so during the Iman Bak administration, there was what they called global Korea. It was really this effort for Korea to try to branch out and do more things, not just do it in like Southeast Asia, but really try to take the global's you know, position. And I was talking with one official about, like, okay, what can you do? And he said like, well, one of the problems we have is is that we don't have the internal government capacity to do a lot of things. And so some of this is building up the capacity to have interagency cooperation and then cooperation amongst your ministries with other governments in the world. You know, some of that I'm sure has been done since I had this conversation about a decade ago. But you know, one challenge is internal. The other side of this is, is that, you know, there has been a shift. You know, I was really and was very successful. I actually had people from the Japanese government come to me and ask, they're like, why do the Americans like Korea more than us now and everything? And what do we have to do? Like the perception of Korea had radically changed under I Bak. But you get to the Pocket Hay administration, which Yimoubak was conservative, Park and Hay was conservative. And I was meeting with a senior official uh, just before the election. I asked him, you know, if you win, you know, are you gonna keep Global Korea? I was like, I've worked in politics before. I know you have to change the name and everything. So that way, it's kind of like her initiative and everything, but are you gonna keep it? And the response to me was, we believe the Yimung Bak people have focused too much on other th- issues and not enough on North Korea. And we're going to refocus back onto North Korea. And so you see this kind of retrenchment back to sort of like, OK, we have to focus on North Korea under Park and The Moon administration is trying very hard to reach an agreement with uh, North Korea as well. And towards the end of the Moon administration, there's sort of this effort to kind of branch back out, maybe spurred partially by the pandemic. And now you have the new Yonsequil administration to where they um, GPS uh, Global Pivotal State is how they want to see themselves and to try and revive some of this, but I think, you know, Korean policymakers want to do this, they want to try and be involved, there are certain issues where maybe they see advantages potentially at, um, you know, maybe climate change or something, but there's sort of reticence on that side too, but they're still trying to feel their way and figure out what their role is and what it can be. And to be honest, I think it's challenging for them because you know, there's this question like, OK, how do we take and focus on doing these other things if we have the North Koreans launching missiles, you know, every other day?
0: Yeah. I'll also just add, I think it's really easy to, the question itself, frankly, I don't know. I, I'm not South Korean, but if I were, a, I don't know how a South Korean diplomat would answer. But I think we also need to take into account that the strategic environment has changed. China is a different player than we once thought it was, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine like, these are all very close to South Korea, to the Korean Peninsula. And I think these things, when I look at the North Korean problem specifically without even getting into the economics or the climate change or the COVID or all the other aspects of the relationship, on North Korea specifically, when we went to the UN Security Council to raise a resolution on North Korea's launch of an, um, an ICBM earlier this summer or earlier this year, Of the 15 countries, 13 countries were unified, and the two countries that vetoed the resolution were China and Russia. And that's frankly, that's quite surprising um, in any other time in history. But because it's today and because the strategic environment is different, that's why we see decisions like this and how we respond has to change as well.
2: The How do
1: the young people in Korea feel about the future of their country? <laughs> <laughs>
2: well so, Sure. I think there's a lot of concerns. Um, you know, if you look at Korea, there's a phrase, Hell Cho And the broader idea is, is that you know South Koreans are Actually, more educated than any other country in the world, they have the highest level of college degrees and master's degrees of any population in the world. Um, but they're seeing dwindling economic opportunities, and at the same time that they're seeing fewer jobs, and their education isn't paying off. And education in South Korea—I you know, didn't grow up there, but is rough. From you know what they say, you know it's all-day schooling basically. And you then ch- channel in that, you know. It's very difficult to be able to afford to have children. It's very difficult to be able to afford to buy a home there. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of concerns about, you know, what is the future of the country if, you know, we have all this education, if we have these great companies, but we can't get these types of quality jobs we're looking for, if we can't afford to build the families that maybe we want to have. And so I don't think that means that South Koreans don't understand sort of like, you know, all the advantages they have as a country. But I think for the young, there's probably a lot of frustration uh, in society.
0: Having just left South Korea um, and living there for four years, it was really interesting because you read these statistics about um, having one of the world's lowest birth rates. Having extreme pressure to go to school—not just you know the nine-to-three school that we our students go to, but then after-hours school expectations, and not ex- not extracurriculars, but you know another three hours of math, another two hours of literature, another two hours of um, social studies or science or STEM classes—and students, as young as elementary school students, often coming home well into the evening—and some of the highest suicide rates for young people in the world as well—and it seems like just a statistic, but I do think that there is a reality about the future of Korea because real estate prices are skyrocketing. Mm. Um, And I think that makes it really difficult for people to imagine how do I make a life, carve out a section of like this society for myself and like build a future for myself. And it is one of the things that I'm just personally, I, I, when I was there, I just remember feeling like, oh, it's really hard to work so hard and then feel like you're the current is always you're always fighting that current. Um, I can't speak for all South Koreans on this, obviously, but it was interesting to contrast just the statistics to the realities of the conversations that I was having with my colleagues and my interlocutors from the South Korean side.
3: Yeah, too much to add, but um, I have had the good fortune of teaching uh, a lot of Younger Koreans from Yuchiwon, from preschool to university level students, um, and all the statistics that were cited are. And this is the the more negative side of the Korean story, right? The I mean, highest suicide rates among OECD countries, among young people, rates of depression, anxiety, all these things skyrocketing. Um,
2: the lowest
3: birth rate in the world, not the industrialized world, the world, and I think it's going on like it's four serious. years now.
2: It's historically low.
3: Yeah, it's historically low and in an aging population. And this demographic time bomb is it's coming. Um, and so this puts that much more pressure on a much smaller proportion of the population to be productive, to take care of that proportion of the population that's not. Um, with all these other barriers in place. So on the one hand. I think Korean young people face a lot of things that American young people do. Like, where am I going to get a job? Even if I do get a job, I've got all this debt. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to buy a house because I'm priced out of these markets. But I think it's like that times a few, um, which isn't a rosy picture. I'm just, I wish I could give a more optimistic take. Um, yeah. When it comes to-
1: Samsung is a one-year tax exemption on TSMC. Do you think that's going to continue? How do you think the United States is going to play that?
2: You, and what do you think? How are we going to use that as leverage? I guess is what I would say. So, part of this is going to be how quickly technology advances. Um, one National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has said publicly recently that in the past we needed or we thought we needed just a relative advantage on our competitors now we understand we need a series of specific levels of advantage over them and so part of this right here is a concern about certain technologies falling into chinese hands that you know, chips can be used in commercial things like an iphone but they can also be used as you know guidance systems and missiles and things so i think there's a good chance maybe there's one more waiver in the line for samsung and sk i wouldn't necessarily say that's certain but i could see reasons to do that uh, because we're trying to build this broader relationship but i think the real effort on the us part is going to be to try and ensure that enough production is moved out of china globally to where you know whether it's in South Korea, the United States, um, you know the European Union is trying to boost production. That we have production in you know relatively secure areas, and that the highest technological side of things you know stays outside of China. So if you look at the Chips Act, basically what this does is that if a chip company takes some of the u.s money they're not allowed to upgrade plants in foreign entities of concern aka china uh, for a decade Um, samsung is going to build a new plant in texas tsmc i think is already in the process of building one if i remember correctly Uh, but taiwan is also reviewing whether it should be putting technology in china as well and so i think what's going to happen in the long run is that you'll probably see more chip Develop chip development in China, but it's going to be one domestic development on their side, and two, probably be a lot of chips that are used in more common devices, so older generation chips. Now, the question is, is how quickly can China succeed in advancing its own technology? And some of that will depend on how quickly they're able to take and develop their own versions of some of the equipment I was talking about that the Europeans make, which is what allows for the extreme small sizes. I think, you know, in the long run, though, it's going to be important for us to take and really do this because a lot of the chip capacity that used to be in the United States was hauled out. But the challenge with this is, is that just like the Europeans specialize in uh, equipment, Japan specializes in some of the chemicals you need. And Japanese companies are basically the only ones who can do it as good as they do. And so, This isn't an industry to where you can take and you can just move everything to the United States and be fine. Uh, And people talk about cost and everything. But cost, I think, is a secondary issue at the end of the day, because we don't want to get in situations where the United States is using chips that aren't as good as what China has access to just because we were worried about cost. So, you know, we're going to have to work with our partners. We're going to have to take and really kind of focus on this because it's not something that you could do and like You know, Samsung primarily and SK are two of the dominant along with micro in the U.S. in terms of memory chips. Um, But AI chips are actually different than both memory and logic chips. And so there's kind of a race going on now with us in China on who can actually develop this sooner. And the Chinese in that sense may not actually be at a disadvantage. And so I think this is why we need coordination. We need, to be honest, to listen to our partners more because, you know, one of the things that some of my South Korean colleagues have said to me is that You know they would like to cooperate with the united states on semiconductors but that they have some concerns about our approach and it's not a question of that okay we're working through to resolve these differences but it's that the u.s isn't listening to them so i think we need to try and find mutual ways to advance our mutual goals
3: how is the south korean relationship with japan um, often seems like we have
2: two friends in the region that due to their centuries and bad weather
0: I'm well aware of the <laughs> history there. <laughs> yes. Um, I do think one thing I will say is I covered North Korea specifically and the level of both bilateral, like our bilateral relationship both with the ROC and with Japan, never been stronger. But the trilateral relationship when we see it as well, also it's, an, it's fairly remarkable the way, the issues that we're willing to work on. I cover North Korea specifically, so I see it at all levels Um, from the president, to the secretary, to the deputy secretary, to the special representative, um, to everybody else in our chain of command on North Korea, but on other issues as well, whether it comes to climate change, COVID, NATO cooperation, um, uh, Indo-Pacific economic issues, um, Pacific Island engagement. Um, And I think bilaterally as well, you'll see, especially since the UN administration, Came to power Like earlier this year, there was a lot more bilateral engagement with the between the South Koreans and the Japanese that we haven't seen quite as much of in the past few years.
3: I agree with all that. The one thing I'll say is. Um, so relations were really bad uh, starting in 2017-18. Like Public opinion surveys show that that negative sentiments have decreased in in both countries towards one another, Um, and negative sentiment towards China and South Korea exceeds that towards Japan now. Um, And there are a lot of various efforts between um, both governments in Seoul and Tokyo right now to improve relations. One thorny issue, though, is there is this domestic court case in South Korea. The ruling of which essentially requires several Japanese firms to liquidate their holdings in South Korea so as to pay a penalty to uh, various South Koreans who were forced forced into labor during the colonial period. Um, This has not been settled. These uh Nippon steel and Mitsubishi, yes, have refused to to make these payments uh, and the Japanese government backs them they're not gonna change their position Um, right now the final ruling has they've been able to finesse this they've given various reasons for it which are I guess fine on the surface but they're clearly trying to push this out because it's going to cause an issue what they're trying to do is develop some sort of public-private consortium where Japanese firms put some money into it some Korean firms do and they try to finesse it but it it's gonna cause Domestic fur, and it's gonna. So the it's, the question is like the degree to which um, this will cause real difficulties domestically. Um, and just considering the Un administration's popularity in Seoul is really low, and it has been for quite some time now. And with recent events in Taiwan and what's going on there, trying to bring anything like this to the fore when it's already, you know, fraught in the best of times. This could, I'm being long winded, but this issue, this specific issue, could pose a barrier to going beyond a certain degree of cooperation. Uh, but we'll see. Um, I know they're trying to finesse their way out of it. I wish you wouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a very good question. Um, I say these things sort of tongue-in-cheek because I don't think they're going to happen. So I, I feel some a little ridiculous uh, suggesting it, but we can't set denuclearization aside, but in effect, we sort of need to. Um, not as a goal not as an objective not as part of our agreements but we have to find a way to develop a new political relationship before we can get to you need to start to, to scale down your armaments. Um, obviously though this requires north korea's uptake and hannah has rightly pointed out either at this session or maybe earlier today the U.S. is saying we're ready to talk to you anytime, anywhere. I will say the North Koreans hate this phrasing. They've told American interlocutors they hate this phrasing. Um, they've been telling us this for like thirty years. I'm not saying we should do what they want us to do and not do it just because they don't like it. Of course not. But it's that sort of framing, not to like attack U.S. government policy, <laughs> is I don't I don't think helpful. I, it's not. Gonna, it, I think it's I think it's I think it's sort of cynical because they know that North Korea is not going to take it up. Um, excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, I you know I don't know how you do that because at the same time I don't think North Korea wants all sanctions ultimately released right away. Like if you could get snap their finger and have them all removed, that requires that that means like starting to open the country up up in in, in ways that I don't think the regime is comfortable with as currently constituted. So. Normalizing political relations is a way to maybe do this, but I don't know how you do that. We've talked about liaison offices. This has been part of agreements. Hannah would rightly correct me, I'm sure. And the North Greens have dragged their heels on some of these very issues. So again, it takes North. It takes two to tango. It takes many to tango in this case. Yeah. No, that was yeah. a good question. I'm not touching that.
2: So the only thing I'll add is, you know, I think Clint's right, you have to find a way to try to create a different relationship with the North Koreans. And the question becomes, how do you do that? You know, There are some things that the North Koreans are willing to engage in. Uh, they've actually been fairly forward about their concerns about climate change and what they're doing. Uh, one of the challenges for us is, OK, so if you work with the North Koreans on climate change, um, to try and help, you know, sort of build a relationship and a talking, you know, point. Solar panels are actually on one of the prohibited items to be exported to uh, North Korea. So, you know, do you take and slightly adjust sanctions to do that? Then work them on this. There are problems. Uh, well, and another way you can work with that action on climate change, and this would fit into what sort of South Korea was hoping to do, though I think that they need to take it sort of maybe a step further, Is over the years, especially during the famine, North Korea has largely become deforested. The North Koreans have made some efforts to try and reforest and made some progress, but you know, there's still work to go there. Now, what you can do is try to work with them on reforestation. But the other way you can do this is basically because you know one of the objectives in climate change is to prevent deforestation because the trees capture the carbon, is you know. Really work with the North Koreans on some kind of plan to where basically they ensure that you know these new forests aren't taken and you know cut down. Uh, but then the question is: is so normally what would happen is you know you would have these, and I'm blanking on the term at the moment, but in essence to where there's an agreement that you know other countries would then pay someone money to do that. Now the challenge is is we're not going to give the North Koreans cash. So then the question becomes: all right, so what could you take and engage them on, you know? So North Korea needs a lot of help in terms of like working on its medical system. So maybe you try and say, all right, listen, we'll take, and rather than taking and giving you hard cash, we'll help you build your hospitals better or, you know, give you more access to drugs or something. But so to try and find these things where you could build sort of a positive relationship, and, you know, there's probably other ideas out there, and, you know, maybe people would have quibbles about the ones I just put out, but I think that's, where you have to go, and you know, I didn't get a chance to answer your question earlier about, you know, do we accept North Korea's nuclear power? I think Clint is right, the reality is, is they are. And I don't think there's a problem with us saying that they are, the question is, is, are we gonna welcome them into the permanent nuclear club? That I think is where I would draw the line. Um, but that being said, we do need to build a new relationship with them because at the end of the day, we don't trust them, they don't trust us, and if we're going to keep, simply keep saying we'd like to talk to you, and they keep saying we're not willing to talk to you, you're not going to build that trust. Hey,
0: everybody, uh, thanks for
2: time. Uh, my question is more about the culture. I think many of the topics you all run up today are very sensitive. They're very nuanced. And even if we ask each other, you know, the minister, do you guys feel about nuclear bombs? So, I mean, they would say something that's very, you know,
0: that can be very shocking. So I'm curious. Um, How have you navigated or learned to navigate through your
2: careers, meeting people, communicating with people, agreeing with people, forming alliances across
3: both language and culture as well? Thank
0: you. Great question. Um, I'll share this one story that I think really, for me, demonstrated the contrast of our cultures. Apologies. Um, It's my husband, who's the only person that's exempt on my (laughs) can call me. Thanks. Anyway, the one thing, so I did one year as an exchange diplomat at the Korean Foreign Ministry. I'm Korean-American, so I am familiar somewhat with the culture. My first day in the office, my cubicle mate came, looked over at me, and she said, I know this is very un-American, an and it's it's prying into your personal life, but I'm going to do this once, and then I'll tell everyone so nobody has to do this to you again." And I was like, what is she talking about? And then she proceeded to ask me everything about my life. Was <laughs> I married? Do I have children? Where do I live? How long, how good was my Korean? Like Just all of these personal details.
3: This was in Korea.
0: This was in yeah. Korea, at the Korean Foreign Ministry. Um, but I thought it was really interesting, because she basically asked me that all these questions, because in her view, it was an opportunity to get to know me. And these were all of the questions that everybody else at the ministry had of me, but would feel uncomfortable asking. And she knew that more people would ask me in the future, so it would just be easier to do it once and get it over with and then move on. Um, I found it very helpful, actually. And it's true. No one asked me those questions again. and they. I went into many conversations throughout my year as an exchange diplomat there where clearly people already had that information and they were approaching the conversations with me with that in mind already. Um, so there are huge differences, but I think one of the things i really enjoyed in be- from being in the Foreign Service is that you get to learn about that and you figure out how to navigate it. And you know, the ambassador and I were speaking earlier about how there are times in our, in my career, I've seen how our, my counterparts, they have a culture and a way of living life that just frankly is very un-American as it should be. But part of being a representative of the US government in that country is being able to show them what it's like to be American. So when I have male colleagues who look to me specifically to ask questions and to show like, actually even though she's a woman who maybe wouldn't sit at the table on the other side, like asking me questions and referring to me even though I'm their subordinate, like those kinds of things I think are actually great parts of American culture that we get to show. Um, But on even like a more trivial, Level, we've also have we have lots of programs through the State Department, for instance, showing showcasing jazz music or baseball in other countries that just don't have that kind of South Korea is an exception. They have great baseball culture. I think we should actually adopt some of their baseball culture. Um, I encourage you to YouTube South Korean baseball games; they're super fascinating. Um, But you know, these are things that we share with the countries that we go to as well. (laughs)
2: I'm <laughs>